I'm Dick Alstrom, and you're listening to Vaccine Questions, brought to you by the Royal Irish Academy Life and Medical Sciences Committee in partnership with the Health Research Board. In each episode, I'll be chatting with experts from public health, immunology, virology, bioethics, statistics, and behavioral science. I'll be asking them to explain how science is helping us to tackle this virus and trying to understand vaccines and vaccination a bit better. Welcome back. Today we look at disinformation and vaccines. And for the record, I have had two shots and I'm now fully inoculated. Our guest today is Professor Jane Souter, Director of the Institute of Future Media, Democracy and Society at Dublin City University. She's one of Iron's leading researchers studying the social media battleground, where hard scientific evidence clashes with opposing claims presented by those peddling misinformation and disinformation. Jane, you are very welcome today, and I look forward to raising these issues with you. But maybe first you could give us a quick overview of your career to date. Oh my gosh, Dick, thank you. Um, well, I started off my career, actually, as, as you know, as a, as a colleague of yours in, uh, in journalism, um, ending up in the, in the Irish Times as economics editor. Um, I then took time out and uh, completed a PhD. And so that led to my second career as a, as a researcher. So I'm very interested in looking at the, the information environment and particularly the information uh, environment online and how to improve it. So I look a lot at deliberation, our citizens' assemblies and so on, and then at the at social media and the kind of discourse that we see online and think about ways of trying to improve it. It's an interesting area, there's no doubt. And um, we can get started with the questions. Um, the first um, is what's the difference between misinformation and disinformation? I think they're often kicked around as meaning the same thing, but there are differences and I reckon that it's probably important that we re- realize the differences. Sure. Um, so disinformation is uh, essentially false information, which is actually intended to mislead. Um, so it could be propaganda issued by a government organization to a rival power or, or to the media, or it could be just simply bad actors. But the, the point is that it's intended to mislead and it is false. Misinformation is false information as well, but it's not necessarily intended to mislead. So people could be mistaken or not paying attention. And then we have malinformation, which is actually true information, but it's miscited, misframed or uh, referenced in- incorrectly. And so used in, in, the, in the incorrect context. That's a new one on me, malinformation. I wasn't aware of that one. So in other words, correct information that's been placed in a, in a way so, that it looks like it's a lie. It look, yeah, or there's kind of the essence of it is true, but it's actually been applied to a context where it was never meant to be applied. So people would often take a finding from a scientific paper and apply it somewhere else where it was never meant to be applied. And that would be malinformation because the kernel would be true, but the context in which it is being used would, would be incorrect. I think I've seen some of that now and again in Fox News. <laughs> Pretty sure. Um, there's one other thing you can tell me about, and that's where what where we fit in the idea of fake news. Where does fake news sit? Is that the same well, thing? Yeah. So a number of years ago, well, especially kind of pre 2016, 
Um, a lot of people would have used the term fake news kind of interchangeably with disinformation. Um, but the term was then uh, appropriated by uh, former President Trump, um, and therefore it became very unhelpful. You know, he, he would have uh, called uh, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times fake news media. Um, <laughs> Some of the so, best newspapers in the world were peddling fake news. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it just became extremely un- unhelpful uh, to try to use it. So that that's why um, we came up with the kind of the differences. It was actually Claire Wardell in, in, in uh, Harvard uh, with the differences between misinformation and, and disinformation. And it's kind of, it's the combination of all these things that's led to, I suppose, what the, the WHO has called the, the infodemic. So this is just, you know, the overabundance of all this information, some of it false, some of it inaccurate, um, and all of it kind of leading to this problem where people just don't know what's true, what isn't. Yeah. And it becomes difficult to sort it out. Yeah. Um, Is the spreading of disinformation something new and linked to the emergence of social media? Or is this something that's always been there in one form or another? Well, so in some ways it's always been there. So, you know, we'd have had, say, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion from from Russia in 1983, which was, you know, meant to be a leaked uh, document about Jewish political and global uh, domination. And that was spread through the news media and and through pamphlets. In 1835, like the the Sun newspaper in in New York published, uh, I think it was six articles purporting to be about life in the moon, which became known as the great moon hoax so life in the moon yeah she can't you see it every night but uh what's different now is the speed and the scale of it you know and the the really kind of toxic combination that when we bring the affordances of the social media platforms um and when this exposes our kind of human frailties i suppose by their algorithmic and, and their advertising uh, models it's one thing kind of spreading things around the place and gossip and, and, and that, but disinformation seems to be a powerful way to cause harm. Um, it, it can intervene and diminish the quality of vaccine programs like our own running now and others, I suppose, that Ireland has seen. Can you give us a few examples how, of how this has happened before, where um, I suppose it was, perhaps it wasn't quite so dependent a few years back on social media, but it certainly still had an impact. Sure. Yeah. There's there's always been false claims and and doubts about um about vaccines long before uh, COVID. You know, we've got uh, Robert F. Kennedy, JFK's nephew. You know, he's one of the notable figures these days. He's a, a an American anti-vaccine advocate and conspiracy theorist. Uh, in fact, he's even been kicked off Instagram for it. But the current movement can probably be traced back to uh, the autism claims by. Uh, by Wakefield in the, in the 1990s. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, Wakefield in the beginning, people thought it was misinformation, uh, but in fact, it was clearly disinformation, you know. Um, so I think investigations have found, you know, his studies were not just flawed, but they were actually um, fr- fraudulent. Um, and they got a lot of, uh, of media coverage, you know, it really fanned the flames of, uh, of public fear, led to, you know, really dangerous falls in MMR immunization. They fell to below 80%. And, you know, with, with measles outbreaks in North Dublin and elsewhere, you know. Mm. Um, 
And the Lancet, where the paper was originally published, did uh, eventually, I suppose, uh, retract it. Um, and he was later struck off the medical register uh, for, you know, I think dishonesty and even abuse of children. But, you know, despite that, you know, he's still a really prominent anti-vaccine vaccine campaigner in the, in the US. Um, and in fact, you know, uh, Trump has has spoken about the, the link with measles. He cited Wakefield. So it's still it's it's still there. And indeed, we see that, you know, Trump voters were significantly more concerned um, about COVID vaccines than um, than 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 other um, uh, Americans. So, um, yeah, the, the, the anti-vaccine movement is kind of fascinating to look at now, you know, because obviously at the heart of it, it's it's mendacious, you know, but they're they're really experienced at creating fear and doubt. and. In, in recent years, we, we've seen them in Telegram groups and, and in other places, and they're, you know, actively interacting with other actors, you know, from the from the alt-right and, and so on, which makes them uh, even more dangerous than they, they once were. Mm-hmm. And it's a complex web, really, isn't it? Yeah. So with um, the, COVID's, the COVID vaccination program, have you, um, I assume you, as a matter of course, you probably watch to see what kind of claims are being made or who the emergent groups are who have feel they have something to tell us about it. Um, what kind of claims typically arise? What might people have seen digging around in their PCs to see what's being said out there? Yeah, I'd say you don't have to dig around in your PC too far. You probably just have to log on to some of your Facebook groups. But uh, there are really many and varied. Um, some stem, you know, um, they're very much just misinformation from a misunderstanding of vaccines and, and herd immunity. Others come from a kind of a mistrust of pharma uh, companies. Um, you know, the, for example, there was a, a group of Roman Catholic leaders in several U.S. states who instructed their flocks to avoid some of the, the vaccines, claiming that cells from aborted fetuses were used in the development. Yeah, I heard that one. Yeah. In Afghanistan and Pakistan, you know, the, the Taliban have been really strident um, about it. They started off their anti-vaccine movement in relation to uh, polio. And they say that this, the COVID one now is Western countries are using it to sterilize the Muslim world. Um, others are more conspiratorial, um, you know, so this is, they're about embedding 5G chips. Bill Gates, in particular, is a is a focus on on much of this. You know, the the conspiracy is that Gates wants five G chips in all of us so we can be controlled mm-hmm. by um, Microsoft. And then there's rumors about people dying from the vaccine or having uh, side effects. You know, a friend of a friend works in the hospital and she said, um, or that they alter your DNA and cause infertility. That's a mm-hmm. huge one. Um, especially in Africa and in in Latin America, um, that, you know, you'll be infertile in, in 10 years' time or mm-hmm. depending depending on the vaccine. So there are many and varied. Yeah. yeah. And th- that particular one is effective because, you know, it's so far in the future. Will you even remember th- these claims were made? But in the meantime, you're going to be scared out of your wits. Well, this is it. And, but that's kind of the essence of all good conspiracy theories, that they can't actually be denied by uh, reference to the truth. You know, mm-hmm. that's what actually makes for a good conspiracy theory. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's research coming in. I, we talked about it actually, and I didn't realize how much research was going on. But the idea of trying to get a handle on who who will go to this, who will accept nutty claims made by QAnon or, or whatever group outright, um, and you kind of wonder why don't they see what everyone else seems to see that is, they couldn't. It was patently wrong and patently incorrect. Yeah. You know what kind of research is being done, and what have we learned from it? Yeah, there's all kinds. So it's very interesting. So um, the researchers find that political conservatives and older adults, older people, are much more likely to visit uh, fake news sites and share fake news articles. Um, and, you know, the, the, so this kind of association between political conservatism and belief in mis- and disinformation has been found in the US, Chile, Germany, and and, and so on. Um, but it's not actually the primary factor which kind of drives this inability to tell truth from from uh, falsehood. Um, so this kind of there's other research which tries to look at what we call truth discernment. Um, so you know being able to spot it, and it's primarily linked to a lack of careful reasoning and relevant knowledge. Um, so people who don't think carefully, who very much make very quick judgments, oh, that sounds like it makes sense, um, or who don't have the, the relevant knowledge, which is why sometimes we find you know, people with lower levels of education and so on can tend to be less truth discerning, I suppose. But others look at kind of familiarity and source heuristics, so kind of shortcuts, you know, the claim you've seen before, or if it's coming from someone you trust, or it's coming from a source that you're 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 used to looking at. So some of it is driven by this um, inattention, but other research shows there's another category of people, and these are often more highly educated, um, and they're actually overconfident. And this kind of overconfidence or lack of kind of epistemic humility, as as it's called, can lead to um, a greater susceptibility to the false information. Um, and it can st- perhaps because it stops people slowing down and engaging in kind of reflective, um, reflective uh, reasoning. And the the final kind of part of it is that it's a really salient part of the of the disinformation. It's often really emotional headlines, so things that are really emotionally evocative that are there to provoke anger or fear or shock or moral outrage. Um, so people are more susceptible to emotion, either positive or or, uh, or negative, are more likely to be um, impacted by this. But it's the kind of reflective thing which is really interesting. So we're doing some research to try to see whether deliberation and a mini public citizen assembly is trying to bring people into the decision making, yeah. whether that could help. I must say, when, I, when you first mentioned that, and I, I saw it as well in print, um, I thought, what a good idea. Because the level of exposure that you get, the people who are there are committed to the whole idea and um, will find the truth and will provide it. And they may have more uh, impact on um, on people generally than, say, for example, the government, um, other f- officialdom, you know, that might have, you know, police, whoever. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. There's also the issue of not just who goes to these, but who pays for these. I mean, the, the, a lot of effort goes into producing these wonderful, beautiful websites that's, that explain how um, Hillary Clinton is a cap, cannibal. 
you know, and you kind of wonder really who can believe this stuff. Um, but then on the other hand, who can peddle it in so effective a way? They must have really great marketeers or something. We have a sense of who's behind the, who's the paymaster behind this. Yeah, so it's driven by a core group of really well-funded organizations. So if you look back at the, say, the anti-climate disinformation, which was, you know, very similar, that was driven by conservative think tanks, often uh, backed by fossil fuel companies, for example. Um, and then the other thing is that there's lots of money to be made in conspiracy theories. So, you know, from selling subscriptions, services, your merchandise, Alex Jones from Infowars, you know, he's been banned from a lot of the platforms. Mm. And he became a, a multimillionaire on the back of uh, conspiracy theories. And his business model is almost totally based on revenue from sales from Infowars Info mm -hmm. um, and for ad time and, and so on. They also tap into political donations, which is really big business, particularly in, in the US. Um, and then others... Um, you know, like David Icke, who was a, a, a former professional footballer and, and BBC presenter. Um, he was ridiculed actually by Terry Wogan when he claimed to be the son of God and for saying that, you know. Uh, but following years, he promoted himself as a, as a journalist and pushed all these really outlandish conspiracy theories, claims the world is run by a reptilian order. And, uh, the reptile thing has been around a long time. A long just... time. And he makes a huge amount. He's become a multimillionaire as well from his books, his arena speaking tours. Um, and there's also an awful lot of money in alternative health treatments. So you see a lot of people who uh, are quite invested in alternative health being part of these kind of anti-vaccine groups, being part of other things. But a lot of these products are pretty expensive and they make a lot of money from them. Yeah, I think that, unless I'm mistaken, up to a few years ago, anyway, Wakefield was still making money, writing books, giving talks and things like that, paid a page speech of fire. And um, so he's still out there kind of. Oh, no, he still does in, in, in the US. He, he, you know, he's making a very nice living for himself, despite being essentially a pariah in the, in the medical world. Mm -hmm. The that's that's people kind of acting on. Um, restricted areas, like say, for example, I don't know, making people lose confidence in a vaccine uh, program. Um, it somehow seems more sinister when you think that countries might do this against another country um, and that you can get very high level disinformation or something. I don't know. Yeah, well, there's always, of course, been disinformation between countries. You know, it was called propaganda. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure it's something that the, you know, the CIA as, as well as the Russians and so on were very specialized in during the Cold War and Cuba mm -hmm. and so on. Um, but there's an overlap of interest and it's easier now to obviously go about and do it. So this first came to, to attention when um, I suppose the, the Russian Internet Agency became very much a, a key player. Uh, you know, we saw that through the whole Cambridge Analytica episode with the mm -hmm. 2016 um, American election. So for a long time, like in the, the EU, the strategic task force was looking very firmly at Russia, um, along with a lot of our, um, you know, European neighbours in Eastern Europe and in Finland and, and so on. Um, but actually, what's been interesting here in terms of COVID is that uh, China seems to have taken the lead on it. So um, 
you know, the Chinese seem to have leaned in some way on former Russian disinformation and uh, infrastructure and uh, and campaigns. And they've used a sort of a, a network of, uh, of proxies um, to do it. So, you know, it started off with a rumor that, for example, COVID was engineered as a bioweapon. Um, and, of course it was. Yeah. And so that started kind of on the fringes of the Chinese internet by uh, in kind of January. But by March, um, there were huge numbers um, in, um, in, the, in the US and indeed in Ireland. You know, so in, in March 2020, Pew found that about one in three Americans believed that had been created in a lab. And mm. about one in four believed that had been engineered intentionally. The numbers were even a little bit higher in Ireland in an experiment that, that we ran. Mm-hmm. And that was despite the fact that it's like climate. There's, you know, 95% plus of, uh, of scientists who say no when you look at the genome. It, mm-hmm. This looks like it was a naturally occurring, uh, naturally occurring uh, virus. And then we see it in terms of the, the vaccine specifically. So, for example, um, there's investigations in the U.S., um, the Alliance for Securing Democracy has done one where they believe the Russians are actively involved in um, a campaign to try to undermine the safety of the Pfizer vaccine in particular, mm-hmm. um, because that's uh, the the kind of workhorse of the of the U.S. system. Um, they think it's maybe to promote the sale of the rival Sputnik one in other parts of of the world and in, mm-hmm. in Latin America and so on. Um, so. They're, they're talking about uh, Pfizer being a risk of Bell's palsy, but also being a, a risk of um, sterile, uh, being sterilized and so on. So, yeah, you can see kind of state actors as well as commercial actors, as yeah. well as just bad political actors, all being um, involved in different ways with different parts of the conspiracy and, and disinformation. Yeah. Um, if you kind of wonder where to look now, they're, you know, they're all over the place. <laughs> If fossils about vaccines are being promulgated across social media, um, is there some way that we can intervene and prevent wrong information from being passed along? Um, I know they do this at some le- at some level because Trump is still off Facebook. Um, but is it what do we do about that? I mean, something has to change; otherwise, we're going to continue to get into trouble with this. Absolutely. So there's a lot of research going into you know what are the different things that can happen. Mm-hmm. There's one, uh, Stephen Lewandowski, who's a professor in Bristol, um, has got a one really interesting one, uh, which is about inoculation um, or pre-bunking. So that's quite nice because mm-hmm. it kind of ties into the... I like that term. In one, yeah. Uh, so, for example, there's a thing called the Bad News Game, uh, which is an interactive tutorial uh, that teaches people how to identify fake news in an engaging way. But there's also other ones where you tell people in advance uh, what's happening or you let them know that uh, these are mechanisms that are used by people who want to do disinformation, that they want to make you angry and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, you have fact checking, obviously, which is aimed at improving people's underlying um, knowledge. Um it does have some backfire effects, and still, if you see a claim once, you still might believe it, even if you've seen the fact check. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it does kind of it it does work to some extent. But we've done some work, for example, where we found some um, COVID disinformation on a Facebook page, and it's clearly marked with the fact check. 
but then we find the same piece in a in a Facebook group, and it's not marked with the fact check in the group. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's really hard to get these things marked with yeah. with everything. And um, we're doing some uh, work on a um, a European Horizon twenty twenty project provenance. Uh, which is about getting people to try to slow down and think because that's the kind of the vital thing to just mm-hmm. stop and think before you like. Yeah, or you mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're we're trying to have kind of simple accuracy prompts where, you know, you'll get an icon that will say there's some reason why you should be careful about this and you can click in and see what that reason might be. Mm-hmm. So we're not telling you the thing is problematic, but we're telling you that maybe you should think about it. Maybe there, there might be. Um, if you ask them to explain if they think a headline is true or false, that will get them to stop. So there's a lot of work on these kind of accuracy prompts and mm-hmm. and who they can uh, who they can work on. And then finally, the platforms could also look at kind of the a wisdom of the crowds approach, if you like, mm-hmm. to try to improve their machine learning. Um, so you know they could uh, have kind of crowdsource veracity rankings. Um, you know, those have been shown to have uh, some potential. And I suppose, finally, I think we should probably work with our libraries an awful lot more. You know, the, a huge amount of this is, are actually older people who are looking to um, often protect their grandchildren, for example. Mm-hmm. They'll be careful of that vaccine. There might be some, so they don't really believe yeah. it, but they're concerned enough that they'll send it to their son or daughter to protect. So. Mm-hmm. Older people have much lower levels of information literacy than the young. And I think too often they're forgotten. Too often we want to put programs into primary schools and we forget about trying to do something to help our 70 and 80 somethings who mightn't have high degrees of information literacy. And they can be influential people within a family. Absolutely. Other family members will listen and it'll be kind of grandpa kind of thinks this is true. Maybe it is true. You know, he's lived a long time and he knows what he's talking about. Maybe not, but anyway. If we, if you look at a situation where you kind of say, you you can't block a person from saying whatever they want to say on the internet because you know freedom of speech and freedom of the press, um, are these freedoms put under pressure when you see that what's being peddled is falsehood? But this is it. It's about trying to so. Freedom of expression is obviously an important freedom. It's, mm-hmm. you know, important part of, you know, our understanding in Europe. It's probably even more important and, and foundational in, in the US, I guess. Um, and so we need to, to bear that in mind. But there is also the public good. So, mm-hmm. you know, we need to have um, we need to have a balance here. And I think ultimately, um we don't want to confuse freedom of expression with the freedom of social media companies to make um, super normal monopoly profits. You know, mm-hmm. so they they yeah. do also have uh, have a responsibility for what it is that appears on on their platforms. And so, how we think about that, um, I think it's important to think about that and to think about the balance rather than having one as an absolute. And the other as as something that is uh, that is in some way more um, more tentative, and I think that organised campaigns that you know sort of deliberately spread falsehoods, um, solicit money from vulnerable groups, undermine public health. I don't think they should be confused with press freedom or mm-hmm. freedom of expression. 
you know, I think that we need greater obligations and oversight on the platforms to really honestly report the extent of the problem and to mm. really test the effectiveness of countermeasures. Like the one thing that researchers like myself want is the platforms to give us enough data that we can actually look at this and identify it. Mm. And so far, despite the best efforts of the European Commission, even, you know, that hasn't been forthcoming. So hopefully, you know, that will happen. I think research, we need to identify the, the extent of it and then test what countermeasures are going to work. Just finally, what happens when one of your family members goes down a rabbit hole and switches over to the other camp, um, puts the whole house on, under a certain amount of tension, but what do you do? Yeah, it's very difficult. There's, you know, quite a lot of our students are talking about this as a challenge if there's friends or family members. Um, the most important thing seems to be to try to talk to them reasonably early in the process, because the more conspiracies somebody believes, the less likely they are to come back, the more conspiracies they will believe. So it's important to um, to talk to somebody when you when you first hear them mulling about these uh, kind of issues. And just the thing to do is to is to listen, um, to not be uh dismissive um but of course the problem with conspiracies is that they have this inherent um uh, ability within them that if you if you speak the truth to it the conspiracy is that you of course are one of the sheeple who would understand that so of course this is what you believe yeah um and the person has often done their own research um so it's important just to say well have you looked at uh, the other research as well or why do you think 90% or 95% of, um, of medics would be in the pay of, uh, of pharma companies? You know, what do you think about peer review for other things about climate science? Do you think that that was the case there as well? Or do you believe, you know, so just to ask them kind of more open questions, try to get them, try to get them to be thinking and reflecting on what it is they're reading and listening about. Mm -hmm. um, ask them the ultimate question, of course, that all journalists ask, you know, is qui bono, who benefits? So why do you think somebody might be doing this? Do you think anybody might be making money from the sites that you're looking at or the, or the links you're looking at? Who mm -hmm. do you think is benefiting from all of you thinking this? So it's to get them to kind of question and reflect because it's this sort of, Self-reflection that we find is the most powerful uh, protection um, against uh, disinformation. But if you just say to somebody, "No, that's wrong. Look, this is right," the you know the defense mechanism will just go up. And, the, and, and yeah, I was just going to I was just going to say, what do you what do you do? How can they protect themselves, or how can anyone protect themselves from disinformation? Um, you might be susceptible, but is it possible to power past this or? Absolutely. The thing to do is to stop and think, to realize that we're all subject to an overabundance of information. Think mm. about the amount of information that's coming at you on your Facebook or your Instagram or wherever you are, compared with what came at your grandparents. Wow. Um, and, you know, you're both on farms. Yeah. So there was absolutely no comparison. And your brain isn't actually developed enough to be able to take this in. Mm -hmm. So you're relying on all sorts of shortcuts. You're relying on all sorts of, oh, well, I trust this. I don't know. That looks credible. That doesn't. But our brains aren't actually built to do it. So what you have to do 
is slow down and think. Nobody's brain is capable of doing it at speed. So if you if you find and if you find that you're reading something on your timeline and it's making you anxious or scared, think about it. Is this because this thing in itself is actually anxiety producing? Or is it because somebody has written this in a way to make me feel anxious? Hmm. Are they trying to make me feel anxious? And if so, why is that? Do I want to feel anxious? Maybe I should just X out of this. You know, if, yeah. I, if I see a headline that makes me anxious or scared, I should stop and think, do I actually want to share that with my friends and family on my timeline? Do I want them to be anxious and scared? Why does whoever wrote it want people to be anxious and scared? Maybe I won't share it this time. Mm. Maybe I'll just scroll past it this time. So just, you know, if you find yourself being triggered emotionally, try to think, why does somebody want to trigger me emotionally? And do I want to do that to my friends and family? Mm. Good advice. Good advice. I want to thank you for your, your um, talk with us. Excellent stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening, and thanks also to our partners in the Health Research Board, without whom this show would not be possible. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to hit subscribe. And if you want to recommend the show to others, just tell them to search Vaccine Questions wherever they get their podcasts. And if you have a question you'd like me to ask our experts next time, we'd love to hear from you. Just send your question along with your name and location to vaccinequestions at ria.ie. Take care and talk to you next time.